Previously on Living and Effective, Season 2. There are often times where we'll come in and you'll play something and it'll make me cry, but I love it. It's like a, a measurement. We are dust. That's actually good news for us. We're not healthy when we act like we are in control. You get to the place that is the darkest and you can't see the way forward. When you pray, darkness is my only companion, you are trusting in the God of the covenant, even in your desolation. It drowns your hope. I mean, clearly somebody's not gonna come back to life. The memories I do have of the really low moments kept picturing awful things happening and I couldn't get it out of my head. I don't know why God did it. And think about the cross. Grieving is a taste of the fellowship of his sufferings. Grief is not the enemy. Death is the enemy. People fight grief like it's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's a necessary thing and actually healing to go through grief, as awful as it is. Grief exposes us to ourselves. Even the grief of others exposes us to ourselves. So, you know, you can't go through grief like that and think you're the same person. Life becomes more precious, not less. This is Diane Langberg, practicing psychologist and the author of Suffering and the Heart of God. That's the place where people begin to realize, in fact, God did not abandon me. He came to dwell with us so that the enemy, death, will be destroyed forever. I'm Richard Clark. And I'm Joy Beth Smith. The Christian Standard Bible and Christianity Today present Living and Effective, Season 2 a podcast about what happens when the Bible and humanity collide. This is our last episode, and it's centered around what is often referred to as the final stage of grief, acceptance. Of course, that's not usually how it works. Acceptance is often just the beginning of the grief process. And it can lead to even more denial, more anger, more depression, more struggle in general. So for me, grieving a marriage and grieving my dad at the same time exposed a tendency to go through life cavalierly, to take people for granted, to be self-centered, and to be focused on like... And this is the interesting thing. It didn't necessarily change all of these things. It just made me more self-aware. So I still have all of these tendencies. The tendency to put ambition before other people in my life, especially the people who are closest to me. I saw that very clearly. There were regrets I had about spending time with my dad. Uh, like I should have spent more time with him throughout my life. Like I wish I'd gone fishing with him more when I was a child all the way to I should have spent more time during the holidays right before he died with him. But I was trying to, you know, succeed at seminary and, like, be a minister. And then there were t- I spent a lot of time at church. I prioritized not just God, but probably church over my wife at the time at moments more than I should have, you know. Do you feel like 
even with the new self-awareness that there are moments where you still grieve those things grieve um like the death of your dad yes definitely um and in fact in in a way they increase the grief they make the grief worse i mean there's nothing worse than regret i think with the self-awareness what i've taken from it is the ability to be a better dad myself I think that helps me a lot. I think that makes me happier. That helps me to have a healthy relationship with that grief, to have the awareness that Atticus will lose me one day and will feel some of those same feelings, to both be okay with that and help him understand that that's normal. It's okay if he doesn't want to go fishing with me or whatever my version of fishing is, you know, to give him grace in those areas actively. Not that my dad didn't. He 100% did. (laughs) He totally did. But it's hard no matter what, you know. One of the signs of who we are becoming is those people that we gravitate towards, right? We, We tend to gravitate towards people who at least understand who we are. So I had the chance to hang out with Todd Billings uh, at his home with his family. I got to meet his kids. That was awesome. And I got to uh, spend some time talking to Rachel, who is his wife. And it seemed like she in particular is starting to gravitate towards people who understand not just what she's dealing with, not just the facts of the situation, but also like the experience of grief itself and how it changes you. Being able to know other people that you can talk about it with and have it be uh-huh. mundane yeah. is a, a very helpful thing because there are different groups of people that you need around you at different stages in the process. So, like, we had cancer friends, you know, earlier in that process right? who we really don't talk to that much now. Like, it's not like we have anything against them, but we don't have the same things in common when Todd was actively receiving treatment. Mm-hmm. And if he goes into treatment again at some point, then there will probably be other relationships that are renewed in that context. Um because of that, you know, you hear like misery loves company, mm-hmm. but like, <laughs> um, I say that misery in the long term likes not having to explain itself. Mm. <laughs> Otherwise, you're always like, you know, you always have to go through that whole, oh, I'm sorry, conversation. It's like, no, it's okay. Yeah. You know, you know, it's not traumatic for me anymore. Like, you've just uh, traumatized somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> so Why is this happening to you? Um, I don't know. (laughs) And I think that's a biblical answer. Mm -hmm. Not in the sense that the Bible doesn't address it. Yeah. I think the Bible does address it. And we get the answer, which is, it's beyond human wisdom. Job's friends, I mean, they do pretty good at first by being silent and present with him. (laughs) And then they start giving all sorts of reasons. The thing is, that these are actually pretty good theological reasons. Mm. Like the reasons which are reflected in some ways in other parts of scripture, mm-hmm. you know, not exactly, but you know, they make sense. But there, there, there are ways of figuring out why a particular illness or a particular tragedy is happening to a particular person. Yeah, you know, the Lord rebukes his friends. It's Job who has spoken right <laughs> of the Lord much mm-hmm. more, and the Lord never gives an answer. I mean, the Lord's answer is you know, in the theophany to Job is, where were you at the foundations of the world? Like, basically, I am God and you are not. This is beyond human wisdom. We need to say to one another that Mm -hmm. we trust that God is good 
and that our lives are in the hands of God, we don't know. It doesn't settle and we just don't get reasons of, you know, why this happens. Jesus, you know, articulates the same the same principle, you know, why was this person why was this man born blind? Was it the sin of his parents and you know, so forth. Now this isn't to say that these things are useless in the economy of God's action. I mean, we believe in the God of the incarnation and the cross of Jesus Christ where God works in powerful ways through weakness and through things that outwardly look like terrible tragedies and mm. outwardly look like just a total defeat and a total mess. But saying that God works through illness is different from saying, I know the reason why God has given this particular illness to me at this time. I probably have two very, very best friends mm -hmm. who will sit and let me sob on the phone and will sit and let me rage about something and will sit and let me feel all of my feelings and cycle through as much, as many times as I need to. And it doesn't push them away and they, they sit in it with me. Our relationship is not affected by my grief. And both of them have experienced pretty significant levels of grief as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was an easy thing early on in our friendship that allowed for that kind of significant bonding. Right. If there's one thing that I have continually had to remind myself, it's that presence is the most important thing here. Don't you think? Yes. Like Job's friends at their most valuable sat with him. They just sat with him. My friends, when I needed them most, sat with me and just existed with me in that pain. And that means a lot because it, it feels like a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. One of the hardest things for me is that I, I don't like uncomfortable situations. I don't like being put in situations where I might say the wrong thing. And so I often avoid those situations and withdraw. That's interesting because you actually feel very comfortable with like darker emotions i am but i think i like to curate when and how this happen that familiarity doesn't make you any more comfortable with other people's pain i mean i think it does it does but i also um, have a hard time putting myself in those situations actively like you saw it in episode two i think you saw it in a previous episode where i asked billings like i feel really uncomfortable talking to you about this and and uh, when I was interviewing Jennifer, I felt uncomfortable. She's crying in front of me. This is my wife crying in front of me. That should be a regular occasion. It's not. It is not typical. Me standing there listening to it is not typical. My typical response would be to solve that problem. Get the crying to stop. Yeah, like because I love her, but also because it's uncomfortable. But I knew in that moment my job was to let this situation play out and to get the information I need and to let her say what she felt. Yeah, to sit together. To hear her. Yeah. You know? The story of Job just keeps popping up 
in this podcast is we're working on it. So it sort of felt natural for me to ask Todd Billings' friend and Old Testament scholar Travis West about the ending. I don't presume to, to know the mind of the author and the original communities that sustained and told that story, but my sense is that the ending, it's supposed to produce ambivalence. Travis even performed the biblical ritual of shaving his head as a gesture of support to Todd. The arc of the story, and particularly God's response to Job, is kind of the climax of the story. And then this, you know, it's a part of the wisdom tradition, right? Mm -hmm. And wisdom tradition in the Bible is basically one big question saying, can you hold attention? It's letting go of the prosperity gospel of if I do this, then God will do this. Or the opposite thing, which is like suffering's always awesome. Yeah, right. Or, uh, Absolutely. Are you okay with the mystery? Are you okay not knowing? Hmm. Can you find me, God, in the mystery, in the tension? Because that's where I reside. Yeah, because if you take away that ending, you almost get the sense that Job suffered, and then he learned the lesson. Mm-hmm. And that's the end. Right. And therefore, suffering is good because you learn to look to God only for your yeah. answers or whatever, right. or no answer, whatever it is. Yeah. But because he got good stuff after, it, it is a giant question mark. It gives us nothing in a way. Yeah. I can't imagine Job's life after the curtain falls. He's lost his livelihood, his health, his children, just to gain them all back. Now he knows that it could be taken away at any moment. He's been confronted with a reality that is fragile. He's tasked with living a life that he now knows can be derailed at any time. By the end of Job's story, God doesn't promise that his suffering will end. And at that point, Job must have known more than anyone that suffering was almost inevitable. And it is for all of us. But sometimes that can be hard to process. The shock of grief is just way too much to take in all at once. And we'll get stuck denying it, ignoring it, or even trying to outrun it. We find our Peter Popoff, someone who tells us that everything's going to be okay and we latch on to them. You do this wild adventure and you take this Instagram post and you just make a joke of it. But there's a little piece of you that hopes that your lottery ticket is a winner. Or we rage against God and the world. We rage against our circumstances. Yeah, God, give my one-year-old a nice journey with cancer. Nobody wants these things. Just like Costi must have processed when it came to his son, we know that it's not just for these things to be happening. Suffering is not okay. But acknowledging that injustice is... I strongly resist the idea that God gave me cancer so that I could bear witness in a particular way I did. Maybe we start striving for some semblance of our old expectations for life. Seeing what we have to do to get it back. We lean in and push through. Okay, you know, I can I can do it today. I'm just going to push really hard before those around me, my wife especially, said, 
Todd, stop doing that. You do that for one day. It takes you three or four days to recover. We try and construct something good from our tragedy. Or maybe we need to process. And sure, we're bogged down in the darker thoughts. The memories I do have of the really low moments kept picturing awful things happening and I couldn't get it out of my head. It's almost impossible to process these things because the weight of that reality is unimaginable. And we realize that nothing about our tragedy is good. It just means the world is broken and we're a part of that. Suffering is going to happen and we all have our own ways of dealing with it. And throughout scripture, we see examples of that. Some of the whole idea of acceptance is, um, it's just very different. It's acceptance that I'll continue to get new griefs. Mm-hmm. It's acceptance that this is not going to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, God is good, and life is a gift Yeah, every moment. I think it's something that fits very well with wisdom literature in the Bible, with the book of Ecclesiastes, with parts of the Psalms, with the book of Job. Yeah. Um, like, I think there's a lot in the biblical witness that says life is grief. Life yeah. is suffering in, in many ways. Um, that's what to expect. And yet, it's also a gift and joy and all sorts of unexpected gifts. Thanks so much. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, that's I good. I finished up my last interview with Todd, right? Yes. and we parted ways. Um, if you want. I wanted to check out Chapel no. on Campus. But Todd needed to skip it to go take a nap. So I went alone. And while Todd wasn't physically present, it's clear through this podcast and in his community that his presence is deeply felt, even when he's gone home to rest. So you're kind of hanging out with, yeah, yeah. kind of hanging out with Todd. Yeah, I've been kind of following him around when I can. Um, and then in beto- on the in-between times, kind of talking to other people. Uh, I talked to Caitlin DeVries. I talked to okay. Tim and yes. his wife. I went to his house for okay. a little while. So, yeah. It's cool. It's been interesting. Yeah. Romans 8. You know, the whole creation groans. <laughs> and not just people. The thing that we were fighting, the grief, isn't our enemy. It, it has actually brought us deeper into truth, which is why the creation groans and why we groan is death, which was never to have been part of our lives. I'll be honest. I thought Billings was an exception. But when I left Holland, Michigan and came home to work on this podcast about grief and started paying attention to the people around me, I discovered a whole world of sorrow. Creation groans. Under every rock, you'll find more grief. And of course, this world is infinitely more broken than we want it to be. But (laughs) the God that we follow conquered death. So when a person begins to shift in tiny ways, what you're seeing is a taste of the power of the resurrection. 
Living and Effective is a collaboration between CT Creative Studio and the Christian Standard Bible. Living and Effective is hosted by me, Richard Clark. It's written and produced by me, my co-host Joy Beth Smith, and Cray Allred. Additional writing by Nick Reinerson, Michael Wojcik, and Nick Thompson. Music from Yawns, Sweeps, and the Gray Havens. We want to thank all of our guests this season. Tim Brown, Diane Langberg, Mark Oppenheimer, Costi Hinn, and especially Todd and Rachel Billings. Special thanks to Stephanie McCulley, Shannon Martin, and Jacob Franklin. Special thanks to Useful Group. So many people at Christianity Today in the CT Creative Studio have helped with this show, especially Natalie Lederhouse, Walter Hagel, Ted Olson, and Mark Galley. 